It had always sort of been part of the attraction of podcasting that you had this giant creative white space to work with. But I, that's what I loved about it. It was exciting. Oh, gosh. People kind of expanding into all sorts of different directions involving the past. The best podcast. It's an intimate thing, and that podcaster becomes a friend. He's a trusted voice. So you're standing in your room and you think to yourself, you know, I'm really in the mood for some history because that's what we history buffs think to ourselves when we're alone, right? Now, you could turn on the TV and watch a documentary or something or pull a book off your shelf, but instead you turn to your phone and you punch up a podcast. Why? Is it because you're headed out for a run or your commute to work or because you're doing something with your hands like cooking or cleaning and want a voice to keep you company? Or is it something deeper, like you've come to realize that actually history podcasts teach you things that you just never seem to find in a typical TV documentary, and in a way that is perhaps more relatable than in a typical history book? Or is it deeper still, something you almost don't care to admit because it feels strange to say it, but you've come to feel a kind of relationship with the hosts that you've been listening to for the last several weeks, months, or even years of your life, and by now, well, it almost feels like you know them. And that, you come to realize, is a very different experience than turning on the TV or opening a book. This thing called history podcasting is something special, and its story deserves to be told. Where did it come from, and what makes it so special? What's its history? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to Dead Ideas. Now, normally we cover ideas once believed to be true, but no longer. But today is different and special. Today is not a dead idea, but a live idea, history podcasting. This special bonus episode is a tribute to the genre that we all love. And to help us tell that story, we have guests from all across the genre, including Bob Packett, Lars Brownworth, Cam Riley, Laura Eakins, Robin Pearson, Royfield Brown, Jordan Harbour, Travis Dow, Glenn Gibbs, Liz Covart, and Dan Carlin. That's right, we have all those people on the show today. History Podcast fans, you're going to hear the story of your deepest passion, or maybe just hear about some classic shows that you should really check out if you haven't already. Either way, it's going to be good. This is the history of history podcasting. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The theme music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who has been so patient listening to me talk about this over the last several months, I tell you. (laughs) I have interviewed nearly a dozen history podcasters and talked to dozens more in order to bring you this story. And we're going to have historical narrative, clips from the interviews, little vignettes and stories, and always with our characteristic dead ideas quirk, because that's what it's all about, right? Making history relatable, making it fun, making it interesting. That's part of what makes history podcasts unique and different and special because we can take an approach that is creative and personal and we don't have to worry about studio producers or investors breathing down our necks saying you can't do that what that means for you the listener is what you get from us is from the heart we're not doing it for the money or the fame we're doing it for the passion and that tends to shine through we're going to trace the evolution of history podcasting chronologically 
through three waves. The first wave sees the emergence of the genre, the second that of big personalities, and the third a creative expansion in all directions, along with the rise of networks and commercialization. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of History podcasting. All right, let's hear the story. Our story begins deep in the past, all the way back in the year 2001. Okay, so it wasn't that long ago, but then again, it was the age of flip phones, so kind of old school, right? Anyway, that's when podcasting begins, 2001. In 2001, we're in the age of flip phones, Von Dutch trucker hats, and mostly internet like this. Most people still had dial-up. Which you accessed, by the way, at your desktop that sits in one place and goes nowhere, very different from today. Podcasting at that time then develops out of blogging as an attempt to enclose audio in RSS blog feeds. And these attempts are called audio blogs. So old school. Anyway, later that year, Apple comes out with the first iPod, and in 2003, you start getting the first actual shows. They are not easy to access. You have to go through a whole rigmarole to get an MP3 file onto your iPod. So the first shows tend to be geared toward tech-oriented early adopters, focusing on tech, science, and politics. But pretty soon, along comes a show that takes this new techie curiosity in a whole new direction. This brings us now to the first wave of history podcasting, in which we'll see experimentation leading to the development of four key formats for the genre, the quick dip, the deep dive, the ultra long form, and the variety show. First wave, experimentation. Alright, so fast forward to 2005. George W. Bush has just been sworn in for a second term as U.S. President. The word sexting has just entered the dictionary, and somebody has finally come up with a name less lame-sounding than audio blogging. They are now calling it a podcast, and this slick new modern technology is about to get historified. All right, everybody, time to check your creds. Can you guess what the first history podcast was? I'm trying to remember now, there was one guy that was doing history, and he would do, like, all eras of history. He was very general and would do occasional series, like, on a theme. Like, a, like the Tuesdays for a couple months would be on, like, ancient Rome or something like that. Um Struggling to recall the answer there is Laura Eakins of TudorCast. We'll hear from her in just a moment. What was that first history show? Was it the history of Rome? Nope. Was it hardcore history? Nope. Let's see if you recognize this guy. My name is Bob Packett. I'm known as Professor Bob, and I am the man in charge of history according to Bob. Yes, that's it. Yes. The year was 2005, the month was March, and the very first history podcast was History According to Bob. Bob Packett. Great show. Lovely old guy, history professor, quite funny, American history professor. That's Cam Riley of the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, who we'll also hear from in just a moment. Now, Cam Riley goes so far as to call Bob Packett the Stan Lee of history podcast. You guys get comic book references, right? Stan Lee, creator of all those Marvel characters that you know and love? Of course you do. Bob is our Stan Lee. 
Now, Bob would be influential, inspiring a whole generation of podcasters to get into history, and he even had an affectionate name for those that he inspired. <laughs> yeah, he, I believe he's one of my, what is, used to be known as one of my pod children. There, there are quite a few of these people who started doing podcasting as a result of listening to me, and they've, they've referred themselves years ago as my pod children. That's right. Cam Riley of the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast was Bob's pod child. And there were many more such pod children. For example, Laszlo Montgomery, who would later create the China History podcast, told me, quote, Totally, totally, had I never stumbled on Professor Bob, there never would have been a China History podcast. My earliest and most potent inspiration, all my early shows sort of copied his format, unquote. All right, so we've got the Stan Lee of history podcasting, right? And just like in comic books, you always have to have a good origin story, right? Well, history podcasting has its own origin story. So let's go to that now. You can think of this as the Pod Children issue number one, March 2005. Here we go. Picture a Missouri man, a high school social studies teacher who is also an adjunct professor, slaving away after hours in his classroom. He sports a dad mustache, and on his head, he wears a medieval bassinet, you know, a medieval helmet. And I'm not kidding, by the way, he had a collection of funny headgear to appeal to his students. And you can see the bassinet for yourself in his show art. Just check it out. Bob's got his own superhero costume. <laughs> right, back to the story. So he's slaving away at his teacher's desk when a voice in the hallway calls, Bob? Bob, are you in there? And his wife appears in the doorway and says, what are you still doing here at school so late? When are you going to come home for dinner? And Bob replies, but I'm so close, I just can't quite crack the code. What he's trying to do is come up with a way to create and share audio resources with other social studies teachers. But Bob's just not much of a techie. Well, fortunately for our story, his wife is. She comes in and she says, you know, I've just discovered something online. It's perfect for you. I said, what is it? She says, it's podcasting. And she explained to me what it was, and she said, I don't think there's anybody who does history. It's all science and math and engineering and stuff like that. And she said, I think you could sit at your desk and just pontificate all day long and have fun with it. And she pulls out of her purse this high-tech, alien-looking, pulsing device called... It's a handheld MP3 recorder. So Bob is like... Huh. And later that night, in his den, guys, we all have dens, right? Of course we do. He pulls out the MP3 recorder, he hits the record button, draws it close to his lips, and as thunder strikes in the distance, history podcasting is born. Now, the audio quality is about as abysmal on this MP3 recorder as you would expect. But the thing is this, no one else is doing this at this time, and listenership grows quickly. I mean, we ran out of bandwidth in the first 10 days. In fact, things grow so quickly that history, according to Bob, is in danger of failing by succeeding. And now here's where our origin story gets dramatic. Picture Bob Packett with his head in his hands, strewn everywhere are bank statements and ledgers, all of which show finances going into the red. What's wrong, honey, says his wife. I don't know what to do, Bob says. This has gotten way out of hand. Uh, it was reaching a point that it would have been thousands of dollars a month. We needed some money in order to continue doing it. I guess hosting costs must have been a lot more expensive back then. Anyway, he says, I've got no choice. I'm going to have to shut down the podcast. But meanwhile, little did Bob know, just then, somewhere else in the world, 
a mysterious stranger was watching. And somebody, who remained anonymous, gave us basically unlimited facility. To this day, I'm not sure that we're not still in that same server functioning, but I've, I've never had to worry about bandwidth at all. So a mysterious stranger cloaked in shadow saved Bob's show, and that is how Bob the Bassinet Packet became the Stan Lee of history podcasting, and that is how history podcasting got its origin. So there is the story of Bob Packet. Now, before we move on to our next story, I want to just give Bob some serious props here, okay? Because in addition to being the first history podcaster, he also established two very important things for our genre. The first thing is a format that I like to call the Quick Dip. Now, the Quick Dip is a show with short episodes ranging across a variety of topics, aiming mainly to inspire the listener to go and find out more. Bob's episodes, for example, are all 15 minutes or less, sometimes even under 5 minutes. And today, there are lots of quick-dip shows like this, from Stuff You Missed in History Class to Useless Information in the Secret Cabinet. And all of these shows, whether they realize it or not, can trace their format back to Bob, the original quick-dipper. So that's one thing that Bob established for the genre. But the other thing is reliability. Because remember, he's a school teacher and he's creating resources for the classroom, right? So reliability is important to him. Bob gave this to our genre. There will be no ancient aliens here. We history podcasters may be mostly amateurs, but we do our utter best to get things right. And when we do mess up, well, we say so and we set things straight. And it's quite common to hear corrections at the start of a podcast episode. And that's important. Granted, you probably shouldn't quote us history podcasters in your senior thesis, but I guarantee that we will be more accurate than some History Channel BS about Hitler's time machine. Quote me on that. Call me crazy, but I see in us a more serious attempt to tell history for real than in a lot of traditional history telling that you see on TV. So there you have it. Reliability is a characteristic of our genre, and that starts with Bob Packett. Okay, now it's time for our next story, and this is an origin story too, of sorts, because our next protagonist, Lars Brownworth, was completely unaware of Bob's show at the time, which had come out just three months earlier. In fact, as we'll soon see, he was completely unaware even of his own show coming out. So it's the summer of 2005, June in the deserts of Jordan. It was, I joined this excavation of Temple of the Winged Lions in Petra. You can join these things. They're, it's basically grunt work. You know, you go there and you move, you move dirt. The heat is stifling and the air dry as a dusty-haired young man creeps into the Temple of the Winged Lion at Petra. Now, this guy is a school teacher too, one from New York, come to help on an archaeological expedition. And like I said, he's completely unaware of Bob's show that had come out last spring. In fact, that is the farthest thing from his mind as he silently steps into the shadowy, rock-hewn temple. He runs his fingers along the sandstone walls as if searching for something, a seam, a button perhaps, whatever might unlock the hidden secrets of this ancient place. And with lips wet with anticipation, delicately, gingerly, he brushes away layers of sand and dirt, when suddenly a voice calls, Lars, phone call! Ah, your secrets shall wait, my dear, he whispers to the temple wall, and he goes to answer the call. 
it's his brother. And he said, hey, Apple, you know, he's in the tech sector. And so he had his ear to the ground. He said, Apple's going to release this this podcasting thing. And so I submitted your lecture. And <laughs> I said, what? Lars searched his memory. What could his brother be referring to? No, no, he couldn't mean that was never intended to see the light of day. But there it was. Twelve Byzantine Rulers by Lars Brownworth. See, a year earlier, Lars had been messing around on his computer. He was inspired by a book he'd been reading about the Byzantines, and he recorded an episode, quote-unquote, but it was never intended to be published until his brother got his hands on it. He put it up on iTunes without telling Lars, and the rest is history. It was like a spoof at first. I think I recorded the first version was like in a British accent. It was it was pretty bad. I'm glad that's gone. Second version of it was released, where I, I just spoke in my normal voice. But what started as a joke proved popular. Lars found himself then in a bit of a pickle. You know, after a while, he's like, hey, man, you're getting comments. Like, people are saying, when's the second episode coming out? I said, oh, crap. <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to do this. I, it was a, a timing. I was, it just happened to be the first one. And the New York Times wanted to do a story on podcasting because it was all the rage. And so they picked mine. And uh, things kind of snowballed from there. Lars' show went on to make quite an impact. Later, Mike Duncan would cite Lars as a direct inspiration for his history of Rome. And that alone is enough to establish Lars as one of the most influential in all of history of podcasting. But in addition to that, it was also the first show to do what's now called a deep dive. Now, in contrast to quick dips, deep dives take a topic into depth, extending over multiple episodes and many hours. Lars's 12 Byzantine rulers was a whole show devoted to a single culture, telling the story over many episodes, and so you knew it was going to be just dripping with meaty historical detail. This was the deep dive. That starts with 12 Byzantine rulers. Now, that show may have been started by a guy just messing around for fun, but that actually ended up proving fortuitous for our genre for history podcasting, because here's the thing. It was created not out of a desire for money nor fame, but purely out of passion. And this is something that we're going to hear again and again today. Passion is what drives our genre and what makes it great. But more on that later, because right now we've got another early genre-defining podcast to discover. You see, a hot second after Lars started, halfway around the world, passion was pushing another guy to dive deep, deep, and deeper still. We are about to see the development of yet another new format, the Ultra Long Form Podcast. Now, you remember Bob's beloved pod child, Cam Riley, that we mentioned just a bit ago? Well, in February of 2006, that pod child made this. Welcome! to the first episode of Napoleon 101. That's Cam Riley with Napoleon 101, later renamed the Napoleon Bonaparte Podcast. And if Lars was the first to do a deep dive, well then Cam, along with his co-host David Markham, well they were the first to go into the abyss. We're talking some Jacques Cousteau-level deep diving here. Captain's Log, February 6, 2006, the Mariana Trench. I am beginning to regret bringing Cam Riley along on this expedition. He won't stop talking about Napoleon. 
I just wanted someone to talk to because my, my wife didn't give a shit. None of my friends gave a shit. No one cared about Napoleon like I did. Literally, I thought no one would listen. It was just an excuse for me to talk to somebody about Napoleon once a month who had the same level of passion. It was just an opportunity to nerd out. And surprisingly, it turned out other people uh, were interested, not just in the subject matter as well, but in going on a long, deep, detailed journey about Napoleon. This was the start of the ultra-long-form podcast. Now, an ultra-long-form podcast gives a single figure or culture exhaustive treatment, extending not just over multiple episodes, but over months and years of work. Usually, the figure or culture is the subject of the entire podcast. And Cam's show is the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. It was about Napoleon and Napoleon only, and it went on from February of 2006 all the way to 2014. We did, I think, 60-odd episodes on Napoleon. And they, some of them were like two hours long. So we did 70-odd hours on one guy. And that had never been done before, to the best of my knowledge, in any medium ever in the history of humanity had anyone taken 60 hours to tell the story of Napoleon. There's not a film, there's not a radio, there's not a TV series. There's books, obviously, long books, and that's basically... We, we wanted to tell that story in the same level of detail as you would discover in a book. Now, the ultra-long-form podcast is so dripping with meaty detail that history buffs... Well, we just can't get enough of it. I mean, here's what Royfield Brown, host of How Jamaica Conquered the World, has to say about that. Almost the longer you go, the more people go, well, whoo, you know, this is weighty. And literally no one is going to say that is too much detail. You know, that that's like porn to us history people. You know, so. so why can we history podcasters get away with going into so much meaty detail like this? Well, it all comes down to one word, cost. David Crowther of the History of England underscores this point. He says, you know, The medium is very low risk. There are no entry costs. If you fail, by definition, no one will notice. <laughs> David is being tongue-in-cheek, of course, but the point still stands. Our low overhead gives us something, and that something is freedom. Royfield Brown agrees. Well, there's no commissioner channel commissioner saying well no you've got to cut this out and you've only got 13 episodes in this season or whatever you can just do whatever the heck you want the bottom line is this we podcasters can afford to go crazy because we're not constrained by financial concerns and it's not about money in the first place it's about passion that's what let cam riley make the longest most comprehensive history of napoleon in any medium short of books and that's what let him birth the ultra-long-form podcast. All right, so by this point, it's now time to meet our fourth and final First Wave podcaster. Now, one thing that you may have noticed so far is that the genre has been mm, a bit of a sausage fest, but it was not so for long. In May of 2006, just three months after Cam and David's Napoleon show dropped, another podcast appeared, and of a very different sort. Enter Laura Eakins, the first woman history podcaster. Now, with a career in astronomy education and outreach at the University of Texas at Austin, she had a lot of interests. And she was curious not just about the stars, but about all kinds of things. And one of those pet passions just happened to be the Tudor period of England. 
Hello and welcome to the introductory episode of TudorCast, a podcast dedicated to Tudor history. Laura brought her own style to the genre that was unlike any of the formats that we've talked about so far. Her show had segments, almost like a variety show. You had This Month in Tudor History, you had Tudor Archaeological News, and you had texts from actual people in the Tudor era read out on the show. So she was really doing her own thing and establishing a fourth format, the variety show. So she deserves a place in our history for that. But I also wanted to know, as a woman, indeed the first woman, getting into the history podcasting game, what was that like? One of the things that um, you hear the most is how women's voices get criticized far above those of their male co-hosts and literally their voices. Yeah, literally like, um, you know, either the tone of their voice or affectations in their voice or if they have vocal fry, things like that. Now, this is an issue for many women podcasters, in fact, as Liz Covart, host of Ben Franklin's World, explains. But a lot of women podcasters, and I've even had some female guests on the show, where their voice is a little bit higher pitched than mine, and I'll get complaints. And that's probably the only email I will never respond to, because it's like, that's how they sound. So vocal fry, is that when you start kind of like talking like this? Is that what vocal fry is? Yeah, it's that deepening and heightening your voice at odd times, you know, to make it sound a little different. Some listeners have said that I've never been accused of vocal fry because I don't do it, but I inflect a lot. And they're like, yeah, you know, you sound a little odd. And I'm like, well, you know, that's just me. Women get a disproportionate amount of complaints about vocal fry, even though men do it too. This American Life host, oh, Ira Glass, he he vocal fries all the time and he admits that, you know, like he has a, a somewhat high pitched voice for a man. So you know, your voice is your voice. Fortunately, this didn't stop Liz, and it didn't stop Laura Eakins back in those early days. Um, women by far get criticized more about that. But again, I was lucky and never really encountered that. Women podcasters were there for each other. Laura mentioned female podcasters in other genres who inspired her, and Laura herself went on to inspire others within the history genre, like Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast. Since her... There have been many other women history podcasters, including Beckett and Susan of the History Chicks, Sharon Eastaw of the History of the Crusades, and Liz Covart of Ben Franklin's World, along with Avril and the whole team of Dig, a history podcast, and many more. But Laura Eakins did it first, and without thinking much of it, secured an early place for women in history podcasting. Now, with Laura, we come to the end of the first wave of history podcasting. The first wave was defined by experimentation, seeing the emergence of these four distinct formats, Bob with the Quick Dip, Lars with the Deep Dive, Cam with the Ultra Long Form Podcast, and Laura with the Variety Show. Now, at this point, history podcasting has pretty much found its footing. The genre is now established, but the story is far from over. Very soon, personalities would explode onto the scene that would redefine the genre forevermore. In the second wave of history podcasting, this new genre gets transformed by big personalities, two in particular, who for very different reasons inspire an influx of new listeners and new hosts to get into history. We're about to see the charismatic speaker and the everyman. Second wave, transformation. Okay, so the year is now 2006. 
The Human Genome Project has just been completed. North Korea has just conducted its first nuclear test. And the number one radio hit of the year is Michael Powder's Bad Day. Uh, it seems like forever ago already, doesn't it? Anyway, very soon, podcasting would be greatly facilitated by the release of a new gadget, the first iPhone, due to come out just one year later. And that meant that pretty soon people would be carrying around in their pocket the very device that delivered podcasts to them on demand. So in other words, accessing podcasts was getting easier. And that has to be the context in which we see this second wave of history podcasting happening. But the core of the second wave is not about a new gadget. It's about the attraction of individual personalities, the first of which can only be described as the charismatic speaker. Now, if there's one history podcaster that everyone knows, who is it? If there's one that might be known even by non-history buffs, who is it? If there's one voice so recognizable that it's nearly synonymous with history podcasting, whose is it? I'm talking, of course, about the host of Hardcore History, Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin was the big show. Nobody doesn't like Dan Carlin. Dan Carlin is one of those guys that really sucks you in and, and gives you an emotional experience that makes you sweat, you know, makes your palms sweat. And the man has done more to popularize history than any academic, you know, than any historian. Now Dan has the voice, right? A voice so spellbinding, it just makes you want to listen. And that voice had served Dan well in a career in radio and TV news, and it served all the better in the world of podcasting with earbuds making that voice feel like it's right there in the room next to you. But it wasn't just the voice. Dan also had an amazing ability to synthesize far-reaching information, weaving it together into a coherent stream of consciousness, and thereby cast a spell on the listener. Now, Dan Carlin's hardcore history may feel like an institution today, but it was not always so. In fact, in 2006, when it began, the genre was still a wide-open, uncertain territory. And I asked Dan what it was like for him in those early days. In 2006, I think everybody was just sort of trying to figure out what they were doing. Podcasting was at such an infancy stage at this point. I mean, you have to remember that there are no professional outlets at all. It's all amateurs. Uh, it, it had always sort of been part of the attraction of podcasting that you had this giant creative white space to work with. So for me, I wasn't looking to be influenced by anyone. I was so excited to have carte blanche in terms of parameters where we could do anything we wanted to, to put in motion thoughts that I'd had for a while. So uh, there was no influence. We were really excited about a chance coming from radio, as I did, to all of a sudden have so much creative uh, room to maneuver. Now, hardcore history in those early days was not like it is today. Today, if there's one thing that Dan is famous for, it's the super long episode, right? Says Royfield Brown. So, you know, the, the squeals of delight that people get when Dan Carlin does a four-hour podcast, you know, these are, wow, you know, he must be talking about absolutely everything to do with the, the Mongol invasion of, uh, of Mesopotamia. But did you know that Dan did not start out with the ultra-long format. In fact, if you can believe it, his first episode was only 16 minutes long. It was July of 2006, the episode topic was Alexander versus Hitler, and with only 16 minutes, that doesn't even qualify as a deep dive. All Dan's early history shows were more or less like that. He started out as a quick dipper. 
Here's what Dan has to say about that. Well, really, years of audience feedback and whatnot. You'd find out what worked, what didn't work, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they needed. Uh, and it turned out they needed more story. So that's how the the pieces ended up getting longer. We ended up having to include more context. We ended up having people show up that didn't know the stories that we were finding all these weird little angles about. So slowly but surely, you start telling them about the story so they could enjoy the funny little angles you bring up. So the increasing length of Dan's shows was a direct response to listener feedback. I mean, I remember one specifically said, we have pause buttons. You know, why, why are you concerned about the time? I think we apologized the first time we ever did a show over an hour for having the audacity to waste your time like that. Now, Dan's personal record to date clocks in at a whopping six hours in a single episode. That would be the Celtic Holocaust episode. Now, if you think how quickly people tire of your stories at family gatherings and then imagine talking for six hours and still having people listening to you, well, that just kind of illustrates the scope of the talent that's at work here. And this brought people in. The number of listeners who, like me, and maybe like you, were spellbound by this, well, they grew and grew. Dan ended up transforming history of podcasting by bringing in droves of new listeners to the genre. So with all these new listeners and this charismatic speaker at the mic, Hardcore History became the unofficial flagship of history podcasting. Says Travis Dow of the History of Alchemy. You have to find that one gateway podcast. It's like, oh, dude, you would like Dan Carlin. Go listen to his Mongol episode and, and then go check out my stuff. So with all that popularity, you would think that Every show forevermore would try to be a Dan Carlin wannabe. And yet, it is remarkable that very few shows actually mimic Dan's style. The closest that I've ever seen come close to achieving it is Daryl Cooper's Martyr Maid podcast in its first series on the Arab-Israeli conflict. But apart from that, there are precious few shows that even attempt Dan's style. And it's little wonder, too, because who can match that? Most of us are not gifted with that level of gravitas or that training and background in radio. Most of us are just everyday schmucks with a microphone. And next, we are going to see a man who came to encapsulate that kind of appeal, the down-to-earth, the possible, the relatable. We'll hear more from Dan later in the show, but now it's time to move on to our other second-wave personality. Dan was the charismatic speaker, but this guy is the everyman. Now, if you ask history podcasters what show inspired them to start, what do you suppose is the number one response? What one show inspired more people to get into the game than any other? I'll tell you which one. It's this one. Hello, and welcome to the History of Rome. It was July 27th, 2007. Mike Duncan's History of Rome drops. Now, among history podcasters... The History of Rome is just about the only show that can give hardcore history a run for its money in terms of most beloved. Everybody talks about the History of Rome. Now, Mike Duncan was unfortunately unavailable for comment, but that's okay. That just means we can talk about him behind his back. Just kidding. Actually, the joke's on me, because it's here that I have to make a personal confession. As someone who got hooked on history podcasting through Dan Carlin, well, I was a little perplexed by the adoration showered upon Mike Duncan. No disrespect, but he just, he wasn't what I was used to. He didn't have that voice like I was used to. His research was solid, that much was clear, 
but frankly, I struggled at first to see what was so special about it. I mean, he seemed like just an everyday guy, but little did I realize that therein lied the appeal. And David Crowther of the History of England puts this succinctly. Well, it was certainly the history of Rome which inspired me to start podcasting. And the simplicity of the format, actually, you know, man reads from script. I thought, hmm, you know, I could do that. At least my mum might listen, I thought to myself. And Ben Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia elaborates on this. It was this dude who cut fish for a living at the time and who was able to just do research about Rome and talk. Thomas Daly of American Biography says, Unlike the other biggest name in history podcasting, Dan Carlin, who was a professional media personality, Mike was an everyman. Something about his quiet confidence and unassuming presentation, along with his DIY ethos, made him eminently relatable. He made podcasting seem accessible and like something I could do. Bam. That was it. That's what made the history of Rome so special. That's what I wasn't getting, but now I get it. People listened to Mike, and they thought, wow, I can do that. Says Travis Dow of the History of Alchemy. Everybody who knew who Mike Duncan was, in fact, History of Alchemy is straight. It's like copying his, you know, History of Rome. It's like History of X, that that format. That's History of Alchemy. Like, that, that's all That's all there was. Yeah, like, now there's History of China and History of, you know, all those. But we were all kind of copying that first generation like and heather tesco of the renaissance english history podcast too weighs in saying quote same thing for me history of rome inspired me to start in 2009 unquote robin pearson even conceived of his show the history of byzantium as an explicit continuation of mike's history of rome i uh, i actually wrote to mike when he said i'm finishing <laughs> and said to him i think you should carry on and um and yeah, it just occurred to me a few months later, well, that is something I, you know, I'd be interested in, but uh, yeah. So the simplicity of Mike's approach, which he has described as just the content without a lot of extraneous babbling, made history podcasting feel accessible. You didn't have to be the voice. You could be a fishmonger, as Mike was at the time, and just do solid research and share your passion. Simple. Solid. Drop the mic. No pun intended. Just kidding, pun totally intended. Mike managed to embody the core essence of history podcasting, which is the ability to take your passion, your passion, not that of some pro with a big budget and a studio behind them, but your passion, and share that with the world. And he made it seem possible for anybody to do that. As a result, after Mike, you got a whole wave of new history podcasters sharing their passions too, going into that same meaty depth first found in Cam Riley's Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. And Mike's History of Rome gave that ultra-long form show started by Cam, well, he gave it its most popular shape, taking an entire culture from its dawn to its fall and telling the complete story with an immense variety of information woven together into a single coherent narrative says Robin Pearson of the History of Byzantium. Because I'd read about the Roman Empire for years, but I'd never put it all together. You kind of hear stories and think, oh, that's cool. And then when I heard the history of Rome, I was like, oh, that's how it all fits together. And oh, that's why that happened. And sometimes you read a whole book, but so much of it is unfamiliar that you don't fully absorb it. And the podcast kind of walking you through it, reminding you, making connections for you, that was just so valuable. That really, it really blew me away. And in a way, the format of podcasting is what got me 
deeper into history than I'd ever been before. Mike gave us that complete picture of Rome, and thanks to those inspired by Mike, we now have similar audio histories for a ridiculous range of cultures. I mean, you've got England, Germany, China, Russia, the Mongols, Ireland, Egypt, Yugoslavia, Japan, India, Mexico, and I could just go on naming them, but you get the picture, right? None of that would exist without Mike Duncan's History of Rome. Yep. That's what was so special about that show. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, I guess the joke's on me. I get it now. So that was the second wave of podcasting, defined by the attraction of these big personalities. You had the voice, you know, the charismatic speaker, Dan Carlin. But you also had the everyman, the guy you could relate to, Mike Duncan. And both of these guys changed the landscape of the genre, but in different ways. Dan, by inspiring droves of new listeners to get into history, and Mike, by inspiring droves of new podcasters to start podcasting. And as a result, history podcasting was transformed. Now, folks, we're going to take a short commercial break in a second here, but I want to leave you with a question. We're coming up on the year 2008 in our historical narrative here, which of course saw a worldwide economic recession, the global financial crisis. So my question is, do you think that impacted the development of history podcasting and how? You might be surprised by the answer. All right, Dan Carlin and Cam Riley will tell us the answer when we return after the break. So, did the 2008 recession impact the development of history podcasting? Surprisingly, it barely touched some while gutting others. Here's Dan Carlin. No, we haven't. We never saw any backward steps ourselves. I don't know what anybody else's experience is like, but there were never any like backward steps. However, for some podcasters, the recession was devastating. Here's Cam Riley. All of my advertising revenue disappeared overnight. Business tanked. Now, that's a pretty dramatic difference between Dan and Cam. What could account for such a difference? Well, Dan and Cam had monetized on different business models. Dan was primarily in the business of selling his old episodes direct to listeners. Cam, however, had monetized on an ad-based model, and that proved a killer. See, Cam Riley had invested in starting the world's first podcast network called the Podcast Network, or TPN, which at its height had around 100 shows covering all different genres, not just history, but everything from digital photography to mastering LinkedIn, and had a collective audience of some 500,000 listeners. And this early network was funded by ads. Ads just like you heard on this episode just a moment ago. Now, when the recession hit, the entire advertising industry beat Cheeks fleeing en masse as one big herd, and thus TPN tanked. That was a very different reaction than the individual consumer supporting Dan, who, although surely on a budget in such times, could still afford a few bucks for an episode to brighten those bleak days. So the experience of the recession was very different for podcasters depending on how they had monetized. However, this really only affected the big players, because Back in 2008, most podcasts, then as now, were passion projects, not money makers. And you can't lose what you don't have, money that is. So the recession was not terribly noticeable for the majority of history of podcasters. But the economic situation of podcasting would soon be changing. 
As we head now into the third and final wave of history podcasting, we will see listenership grow immensely, which presents an increasingly attractive prospect to the advertising industry as it recovers from the recession. But what characterizes the third wave, even more than the jingle jangle of coin, is a creative explosion. See, one of the reasons that guys like Dan Carlin and Mike Duncan, who loom so large in this genre, could make such an outsized mark is because at this time, there still just wasn't that much out there for history podcasts. Well, not yet. Due in no small part to their inspiration, the genre was about to expand in every direction, some following the mold, others shattering it. Which brings us to our third wave of history podcasting. Third wave, the creative explosion. The year is 2009. Barack Obama has just yes we canned his way into the 44th presidency of the United States. The movie Avatar sweeps the box office, and the first Bitcoin blockchain is mined. It's called the Genesis block. Pretty creepy. Meanwhile, things are happening within the world of podcasting. Outside the history genre, shows are starting that would be the tide that raises all rafts, expanding the total audience of podcast listeners. For example, the WTF podcast with Mark Marin and the Joe Rogan experience both hit in 2009. Joe Rogan in particular would impact the history genre with guest appearances by Dan Carlin, which gave him a big boost, as well as by starting the podcasting career of Daniele Bolelli, the host of History on Fire. And as a result of all this, people outside the narrow history niche were starting to wake up to history podcasting. But many within the genre were frustrated, frankly, by the homogeneity that has come in the wake of the ultra-long-form podcast and all these shows that are just kind of, you know, following that mold. And also, history podcasting at this time is still largely male, white, and Eurocentric. And the style is almost uniformly lecture-like, you know, like given from a podium almost. But all this is about to change as a new generation of podcasters come up chafing against the norm. 2010 sees the beginning of this trend. Laszlo Montgomery's China History Podcast, the first devoted entirely to a culture outside the Euro-American sphere. And the following year, in 2011, we also get the first show devoted specifically to women, the History Chicks tell the life stories of great women from Mary Antoinette to Josephine Baker, and suffice it to say, innovation is in the air at this time. All these shows and more push the boundaries of what has been done in history podcasting into a new realm. But very soon, these same boundaries would be not just pushed so much as obliterated by a pair of shows in particular that provoked the question, is this even history? The first of these appears in 2011, billing itself as a podcast that should be listened to in the dark. You wake in a strange room. Your clothes are foreign and the walls are covered in objects from a different world. You don't know where or when you are, or if you're still dreaming. There are footsteps in the hall. Jumping up, you race out of the room and into the streets. You have just entered. The Twilight Histories.
With a creepy nod toward the Twilight Zone, Jordan Harbour's Twilight Histories takes an imaginative approach inspired more by fighting fantasy and choose-your-own-adventure books than contemporary podcasts. He wanted to create an immersive experience, so he shaped his show not around historical figures or events, but a fictional first-person perspective. And the first episode sees from the eyes of a time traveler journeying back to prehistory. It was called Ice Age Misery. And it was sort of like you are going back and experiencing a world, in this case, the Ice Age, in kind of like a nature show, like you're, you know, the guide going through and experiencing the things. And, you know, you have a few adventures along the way and, and things get sort of deeper and deeper as you get immersed in the world. And Now, this was new to history podcasting, and the show would go on to diverge even further into the realm of alternate history, posing questions like, what if the Aztecs got steel? Or what if ancient Rome industrialized? And then following a character sent by futuristic technology into that alternate timeline as a tourist of sorts, though a much more grim fate than that would suggest was usually in store for Jordan's pleasure-seeking characters. Now, this creative story format challenged the bounds of the genre. I mean, was it history? Was it fiction? What was it? You know, because my show is its a bit of a black sheep, right? Like, I, I was different from the rest, and I was i was conscious of being different, and, and I knew that there's got to be some other people out there, and maybe they're different too. This story format would later be taken up by Tristan Verboten's Story Engine show, which presents well-trodden historical tropes in rather unusual ways, such as the exploits of Julius Caesar told as a 1930s-style radio news broadcast, or the uprising of Spartacus told by a Bronxy Italian boxing agent. Again, is this history, or what is this that I'm listening to? And at the same time, another podcaster coming from a background in video editing, started to provoke the same question, is this history, but in a different way. He shakes up the scene with a controversial release of a very different sort. So we just heard how Jordan was tripping people up with his story-based format. Now, in 2012, people are being tripped up again by another show that left them scratching their heads, but for a very different reason. This is the story of how one small island conquered the world. Jamaican Patwa. And a fair start, a Safa Pound. Usain Bolt is also out well. Here they come down the track. Usain Bolt! It's a story of music, sport, and style. How its rhythms, athletes, and language went global. Pull up, pull up. This is how Jamaica conquered the world. That's How Jamaica Conquered the World by Royfield Brown. Now, as an Englishman coming from a Jamaican family, he wanted to explore his roots. The vast majority of that whole series are kind of new. I knew it in my bone marrow. So, naturally, I wanted to know, is this what made his show controversial? Let me put it this way. History of podcasting is kind of white. <laughs> so, were you, did you feel like you were, you were breaking some new ground? Did you get any pushback? Did you have a lot of people welcoming that? What was that like? Um, I think there were, yeah, history podcasting was very white and, and still is, in the English language anyway. To, to be honest with you, the, the biggest issue that I had was, is this really history? You know, if I'd have done the history of Ethiopia or the Empire of Ghana or Shanghai, 
I think people would have been like, oh, yeah, okay, it's history. It's history that we don't know and we, we might not be that interested in it, but it's history. But I, I started it within living memory and it wasn't treated as a regular history podcast. So more of it was a push against that as opposed to you do in a country which, is, which has predominantly black folks living there. You know, it, it, it is kind of social history and you know, you're talking about music, you're talking about a whole load of other things. And of course it is history, but it's not that big man version of history. You know, this is a fundamentally story of decolonialization and emigration. So it's very much a, a social history. And that tripped a lot of people up. This audio collage of social and cultural history was new and challenging for many listeners. And then when you tell people, well, the, uh, the biggest cultural, musical cultural export of America in the last 50 years, what is it? You know, a lot of people answer rap and hip hop. And you go, well, without the island of Jamaica, that does, does not exist. The hip hop was founded by Jamaicans, by DJ Herc in the Bronx in the yeah. early 70s. And then people kind of get it. They go, what? You know, you people did reggae. And then in effect, you, you, know, you gave the world hip hop through America. This thing which is completely defined as being America is of Jamaican Caribbean roots and stuff. And then people kind of get it. They go, oh, OK, fair enough. I, I've got it now. And yet Royfield still found himself a bit on the edge of the community. I always was the slight odd one out. So you had these two figures, Jordan and Royfield, both odd ducks out. And ironically, they would come to be pillars of the community, which they achieved by being the first to get history podcasters to organize. Sometime around 2013, Jordan and Royfield came together and started a Facebook page called History Podcasters. A very creative name, to be sure. But hey, it worked. They also started some roundtable discussions. And within a few years, out of that roiling ferment came the first history podcast networks made up of multiple podcasters. Roy Field, along with many others like Thomas Daly of American Biography, was instrumental in the founding of the Agora Podcast Network, which was an attempt to band together for mutual support and monetization. The point was to get more downloads for your show and possibly to make some money. Uh, you know, the two things were in lockstep. Meanwhile, Jordan headed in a different direction, organizing the Dark Myths Collective. Rather than pursue ads, Dark Myths shows leaned toward a more of a patron donation model. They weren't entirely history either, embracing true crime and the paranormal alongside history, but all of them bound together by this element of the dark side of the story. I wanted to expand beyond just history podcasting and cross genre because you know you can if you just kind of play within the the same wheelhouse of of one genre eventually you you know everyone knows you and you know you, you can't really leverage yourself much more by the way jordan has since stepped down as lead organizer of the dark myths collective and that mantle has been taken up by latvian podcaster Kristaps andresens the host of eastern border which tells the history of the Soviet Union, drawing on Russian-language sources and first-hand interviews with people still alive today who remember Russia behind the Iron Curtain. So Kristaps has taken up leadership of the Darkness Collective. Okay, so you've got Agora, and you've got Dark Myths, and these two networks, in their different ways, begin organizing the community. 
they prove immensely fruitful for support and cross-fertilization of ideas, which further fuels the creative explosion characterizing the third wave of history podcasting. But at around the same time that these networks are setting up, however, there are also those who want to hack their own trail through the jungle. Enter Glenn Gibbs, a six foot four punk from Kentucky. I come from people that carried six guns and smoked corncob pipes, you know, real get off my land varmint kind of people from Appalachia. So I kind of grew up with this cram it authority attitude. The history podcasts that were out there at the time, they just weren't what he was looking for. So he took that as a personal challenge to create his own. And I thought, well, I'm going to start one too because all of your podcasts blow. Um, that was kind of my, <laughs> that was my attitude at the time. So that was kind of, but I, but I, that's where I loved about it. That was like, you could throw your hat in the arena, you know, and then you got the thumbs up or the thumbs down. And that was what excited me about it. And that was, that's why I say it was the wild west. You could just hang your shingle outside your shack and say the Eaton house is open and, you know, see who shows up. And I love that. Inspired more by Terry Jones and Black Adder, both of whom used humor to invert typical narratives and show the perspective not of the shining hero, but of the average grunt. I don't care about what Alexander the Great was thinking. I care about what three rows back, three from the left center guy in the phalanx was thinking. Glenn did the same with a new show called The Lesser Bonapartes. Now, along with his co-host at the time, Daniel Doughty, Glenn Gibbs ribbed ancient cultures and figures, popping a hole in the grandiosity of over-glorified figures. You know, when I, when I would say things like, oh, yeah, you fell out of, you know, Alexander the Great, you know, is a story of a kid taking his dad's car for a joyride. And then people would go like, how dare you, sir? You know, this is, you know, that's exactly what it is. No, man, history is a story of ridiculous people doing ridiculous things. <laughs> now, this was a fresh approach to history. And although most listeners at the time did not seem to get it... It was about as popular as banning blowjobs. Enough listeners did get it that the show took off. This was the first time that humor really came to the forefront in history podcasting. Now, there had always been a bit of dry wit here and there. I mean, for example, Mike Duncan's History of Rome had episode titles like Trials and Tribulations, or Take My Wife, Please, or All in the Family, things like that. And David Crowther's History of England always had a bit of that Terry Jones wit about it. But it was not until the Lesser Bonapartes that you started getting shows that really took the tie off and put on the Hawaiian shirt. And eventually, following this line, you would get shows like the Baddest Ass, where two brothers who each represent a historical figure argue boxing match style, which was the batter ass, or History in Hindsight, which brings comedians on as guests to look at weird old newspaper ads and articles, and Cam Riley, who we've heard from many times already, around this time starts to develop his characteristic irreverent approach, beginning with the series on Augustus in his Life of the Caesars show, just one of his many shows. And also our own show, Dead Ideas, also carries on this tradition of quirky history telling inspired by the Lesser Bonapartes. But above and beyond humor, there was a second and deeper dimension to what Glenn and Dan were doing on the Lesser Bonapartes. They made a point of 
letting their personalities and even personal lives show through to the listener. Yeah, it's it's not a history podcast. It's the documentary on the making of a history podcast. It's going to be warts and all. Now, this is a dimension that I call authenticity, meaning letting your personality and your personal life even show through such that the listener comes to feel like they know you. And I know that might not sound very important at first glance, but let me break it down for you to show why this is absolutely key to what makes podcasting special in our modern age. See, in contrast to the effist personality of the typical documentary narrator, right, or the lofty academic expert, the podcaster builds a relationship with you, the listener, over time. For example, by the end of Mike Duncan's History of Rome, you knew a surprising amount about him as a person, says Royfield Brown. You know, if you listen to Mike Duncan, the, the sweep, the span of his shows, you do realize that he's had two children were born, that he's moved from Seattle to, to Texas and, and, and all manner of things and stuff. And, and actually, you, the listener, you're, you're on a journey with that podcaster. You know, you actually, you, you raise something which is very interesting that um, the amateurs can put more, I would say, color on it than, than the professionals. And it's because it is a passion. And you've discovered this podcast who's talking about your passion or, or a passion which you're interested in. And it's an intimate thing. And that podcaster becomes a friend. He's a trusted voice. So this kind of authenticity, letting your listeners get to know you as a person, is actually key to what makes podcasting a special kind of history telling. Because think about it, today we have the internet, right, where you can Google up information on any historical topic that you want in an instant. So if you want to learn about something, you don't need us. What are you even doing listening to us? But in an age of infinite information like this, it's so easy to feel lost and anonymous in it all. So what people really crave today in the age of Web 2.0 and social media is relationship. And podcasting provides that. As you, the listener, put our voices into your ears week after week as you go about your day running, cleaning, or commuting to work, and when podcasters share their personal lives with you, strangely, you may come to feel them as personal friends, even though you have never met them. That, that dimension is what I'm calling authenticity. And the lesser Bonapartes, they took that to a whole new level. That's going to be how we're going to kind of tell the audience that, hey, we're here with you. You know, we're just some assholes like you trying to figure this out. So in an age of infinite information and anonymity, history podcasting manages to be intimate. That's something special. So history podcasting was becoming less of a podium lecture and more of a conversation among friends, sometimes even with a hefty dose of laughter. Now, at this point, you might worry that with all the humor and the personal stuff that I'm talking about, what may get lost is the historical rigor. You know, you might worry about a new kind of dumbing down in history. But personally, I have seen no evidence of that. In fact, I've seen the opposite. And I can say for our show, for sure, the list of academic references that we post in our show notes on our website is always like a mile long for every series. And I know many other shows that do the same. And Dan Carlin 
even likes to talk about his quote-unquote audio footnotes, where he'll cite on air one historian and then another with a contrasting viewpoint. And he's actually found that this has been enlightening for his audience. So there you go. I mean, rather than dumbing down history, we podcasters are carrying on the torch of reliability established so long ago by Bob Packett, and even training our audiences to think critically, discovering, just as Dan mentions, that there's more than one side to history. It's complex. It's complicated. And we don't shy away from that. And listeners, believe it or not, they actually eat this up. We podcasters are discovering that although you might think the average listener would tune out to all that academic mumbo-jumbo, that's far from the case. Listeners actually want that depth and rigor. And that is a point driven home by our next podcaster. Welcome to Ben Franklin's World, a podcast about early American history with Liz Covart. Liz Covart's Ben Franklin's World, which came out in 2014, takes it right into the heart of academia. The show interviews historians and academics on topics of early American history, such as the role of Protestantism in the development of race-based justifications for slavery, or early examples of same-sex marriage in colonial America. And Liz has found that her listeners write in thanking her for bringing that academic level. If you're honest that history is complicated and that people are complicated, people find that fascinating and they become even more interested in history. So that that's what I wanted to do. Now, when I asked Liz about what makes history podcasting so special, she had an interesting observation which bears upon what we were saying earlier about intimacy. It's actually biological as to why podcasts are so great. So we are hardwired as humans. We have evolved in such a way that we are hardwired for oral storytelling. So we learn things better when we're listening. And if you look at the science behind it, when you watch a, a video of something, it's actually an inactive type of content consumption where listening is very active. So it activates your brain in different ways, much like reading. So you'll hear something and your brain automatically starts to form an image where when you're watching it, the image is already formed for you. So, I mean, there's a science actually as to why podcasting is so great for that. Oral storytelling runs deep in our blood, and this, no doubt, contributes to the subconscious sense that the voice you hear week after week is, in fact, of your tribe, a trusted friend. And by the way, Liz's show also deserves a place in the history of our genre for being the first interview show. Now, Plenty had done interviews before, but hers was the first to make it the primary format, interviews and interviews only. And she did that in order to bring the experts to listeners like you and I, and, well, we can't get enough of it. Now, Liz is currently employed full-time by the Omohandro Institute just to make her podcast and keep raising the bar in terms of rigor delivered to the listener. So, history podcasting is keeping its rigor at the same time that it grows and expands creatively. And with that growth, we are also seeing a diversification. 
Different kinds of people are getting their voices heard in this genre. We've already seen women podcasters, and we've seen Royfield Brown bringing his Jamaican heritage to the table, but many other minority groups have started coming to the fore as well. And this will become ever more apparent with our next guest, who, despite having numerous shows of his own to talk about, was even more eager to talk about his co-hosts and contributors coming from highly challenging situations. Travis Dow is the host of a ridiculous number of shows, seven I believe it is, starting with the history of alchemy, but what he really wanted to share about was his co-hosts and contributors, the first of which is Pete Coleman. Now Pete co-hosts the history of alchemy with Travis, at the same time as hosting The Bohemican, of which he's the host and Travis is the co-host, and The Bohemican covers Czech history and culture. But Travis really wanted to highlight Pete as a person. Here's what Travis has to say about Pete. Pete Coleman seems like a pretty amazing guy, too. He was in the running for the U.S. Paralympics team for wheelchair fencing. Yeah, Pete is, he's been in a wheelchair since he's 11. So he's kind of like come to terms with everything and dealt with everything. But not only that, like he's thrived. He lives in Prague and he's he's an American, but he lives in Prague and, you know, has Czech kids and travels the country and doesn't let anybody tell him no. And, you know, sometimes uses his his like not speaking very well Czech as an excuse to not listen to no and just drives anywhere he wants and you know and by the way pete coleman is currently developing a new show called past access about traveling to historical sites in a wheelchair it's like traveling in a chair or like making traveling accessible because he's been everywhere like you said you mentioned the paralympics team uh so he's been to like china and and He's been to like all the Civil War battlegrounds and in and he's still the way he travels and visits castles now just for a day, like day trips. Then then when you get to know him, you're like, okay, wait, but how did you do this in a chair? Like how and then you you know, you just kind of see, like, oh, he's got the fifth wheel for this, and you know, he can kind of stand up and walk up a couple of stairs for this, and but like, damn, like he just makes it happen. <laughs> it is really inspiring. Listeners, definitely check out Pete Coleman's new show, Past Access, coming out soon. Now, the second person that Travis was eager to talk about is not a co-host, but a translator. See, one of Travis's many shows is called The History of Germany, and this show, in the age of Syrian refugees fleeing turmoil in the Middle East, has taken on a whole new dimension of importance. Now, English speakers may not have realized it, but The History of Germany is now available in Arabic thanks to the volunteer work of Travis's translator, Imad. Here is Imad's story. He's a Syrian refugee, but he's not in safety. He's still in, he's near Cairo. And the reason he left, what actually pushed him out the door, what made him like take a huge risk and, and like fly to the Sudan without a job and just kind of make it all happen, like flee, like literally flee the country without anything. But he's an atheist and he's bisexual and he's still not in safety in, in Egypt. And so I'm trying to get him like, I, well, I want to get him to Germany or here, or, you know, just I want to get him to safety. Imad actually approached me and was like, I want to translate uh, your show History of Germany to Arabic for Syrian refugees living in Germany. And like, like, I'll be damned if I didn't tear up. I mean, that's I was just like, oh, you, you know, you got it. Like you like, what do you need? You're the boss. And I think part of the, my mission for podcasting has changed. So people like Pete and Imad are contributing to our genre, bringing their talents to the fore despite adversity. 
And as a fortunate byproduct, our genre, which is admittedly still largely dominated by straight white males, is becoming more and more diverse. But it's not just the people, it's also the topics and cultures being covered that are becoming more and more diverse as well. While most of the early shows largely defaulted to a Eurocentric bias, this is changing. And part of it is because most of the big European and North American cultures have already been covered. There's been a land grab. There is a history of Germany, Italy, you name it, the major European countries have been done. That's Royfield Brown once again. So because of this land grab, by necessity, new podcasters are having to reach further afield. But interest also plays a part. One of Travis Dow's many podcasts is The History of Africa, in which you can clearly hear his passion for the places that he's describing shining through. He visited Zanzibar, and then he was so bursting with enthusiasm that he just had to make a podcast about it. Also, Royfield Brown has staked out the history of Ethiopia for an upcoming project of his. I am eventually at some point going to do the history of Ethiopia. And I keep saying this to people because then it means I'm going to have to do it. There you go. The history of Ethiopia. So you can come back to me in nine months time if I'm started and say, you said you were going to do the history of Ethiopia. So there you go. (laughs) But much like Travis helping Ahmad, this project also has a sense of mission about it for Royfield. And he has something to say about that and our genre. There is an obligation on new people coming to the genre actually to tell non-European centric stories. And when I say European, I actually, that does include North America. Let's tell Asian stories and let's tell African stories. You know, if you are in Cleveland and you're doing the history of West Africa, there is no reason why you can't ring up a professor in Accra on Skype. You can put your podcast in Accra or anywhere around the world. So so why don't we do that? So there's a mission for all you potential history podcasters out there listening to this. So in short, history podcasting is getting more diverse. It's also getting more experimental. For example, our own show, Dead Ideas, has attempted to gamify history with our role-playing episodes in which the co-host takes on the role of a character in a historical setting and is presented with challenges, and meanwhile the listener hearing this can identify with that character, see from their eyes, and thereby get an immersive and dynamic experience of the historical time and place. And this is new. This is a new experience in history telling that, so far as I know, has never been done before, and it's garnered enthusiastic feedback from our listeners. And there's even further developments in this. The podcast When Diplomacy Fails by Zach Twomley is now taking that gamification even further, inviting listeners to participate in something he calls the delegation game, in which listeners take on the roles of delegates at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference after World War I. This is something that's coming out just this year in 2019. And basically, participants will vote on key measures of the conference, and the result will influence the historical narrative, or perhaps alternate historical narrative, as Zach podcasts it on the show. It's these kinds of creative experiments that continue to push the boundaries of history podcasting as we press forward into the future. So, to sum up, the third wave of history podcasting is characterized by a creative explosion. 
History podcasting is growing and expanding in all directions and becoming more rich and more diverse. It's getting more personal, developing deeper relationships with listeners, and it's often even funny, brightening your day even as you learn more than you ever would from a typical TV documentary. Now, the way that we history podcasters tell history has evolved, and that's what we have seen so far in this episode. It began in the first wave with Bob Packett as an attempt to provide reliable resources for teachers, and with Lars Brownworth as a personal passion that might never have been released were it not for his joking brother. Then we had Cam Riley, who brought his passion to tell the story of Napoleon more comprehensively than any other medium outside of books, and we had Laura Eakins sharing her love for Tudor history. In the second wave, History podcasting grew with the influence of captivating personalities like that of Dan Carlin, who persuaded listeners to get into history, and Mike Duncan, who inspired new hosts to start podcasting with an I-can-do-that-every-man kind of style. Then, finally, the third wave saw a creative explosion expanding into humor and authenticity and diversity and experimentation. Now, the result of all this roiling ferment is essentially a new kind of history telling. I mean, among all the various forms of history telling in the popular medium, history podcasting is unique and special. We tend to go into greater depth and nuance. We tend to do it in a way that is more personal and relatable. And all of that is enabled above all by the simple fact that our genre is driven not by money, not by fame, but by passion. Our low overhead affords us the opportunity to follow our passions, pursue a niche audience, not dumb it down for the widest possible audience, but speak directly to you, the listener, the history buff. And we can afford to do it in a way that builds a relationship over time and makes you feel like this is not some impersonal voice, but a close friend. That is a very different kind of history telling than you get from a typical TV documentary or an academic book. That's special. But there are concerns for the future of history podcasting. As our genre expands and commercialization ramps up, some podcasters look forward to bigger opportunities, while others fear what makes us special may get lost in the process. So now to conclude this history of history podcasting, let's look to current trends and what's in store for the future. The future. We seem to be at a tipping point in history podcasting, poised potentially to break through to the mainstream. First of all, there are more history shows now than ever before, and you can find a podcast on just about anything now. There's, for example, the History of Witchcraft, the History of Pirates, the Explorers Podcast, the History of Literature, the Art History Babes, and that's just to name a few. So we are reaching a critical mass to appeal to many different kinds of people with many different interests. Second, advertisers are getting more and more interested in us because our episodes are evergreen, as they say. You see, in contrast to, say, basketball podcast episodes, which have a lifespan of essentially one news cycle, our episodes remain appealing over time, resulting in a long, slow burn of ad play, which is very appealing to advertisers. And finally, some of us are beginning to hit the big time. Mike Duncan, for example, has scored a book deal. His book Before the Storm, covering the last days of the Roman Republic, is now available in stores, 
and Aaron Mankey's podcast, Lore, which presents the historical roots of horror favorites like vampires and werewolves, that sort of thing, has struck a deal with Amazon Video for a video version of the show. Is this the future of history podcasting? Are we headed toward big dollar deals with mainstream media? Indeed, many podcasters are optimistic. Video in particular seems to be the next big thing on people's minds. Here's Cam Riley, for example. Next hurdle for us is how do we put our stuff on Netflix and or YouTube uh, in a way that's uh, visually entertaining? In fact, Cam is at this moment just completing an animated video show on early Christianity called Marketing the Messiah, the first parts of which are already available on YouTube now. You can check it out. So many are optimistic about the future, especially about video. However, others are hesitant. Video brings with it a higher overhead, after all, which runs contrary to the traditional low overhead, which, as we've seen, is one of podcasting's greatest virtues. Furthermore, Travis Dow worries about what big-budget shows will mean for the little guy just getting started. So when I look at the future, what I'm afraid of or where I see this going is I see more NPR podcasts out there that are going to be top quality and hard to beat, and that's the problem. It's like, yay for content, but it's going to be harder and harder for you know independent folk to just pick up a Blue Yeti and be like, GarageBand, and, and off you go and get a couple million downloads. Will big-budget productions edge out the little guy, like Starbucks edging out your local coffee shop? And as that transition to a higher-budget style takes place, will the differences between us and big-budget mainstream media begin to disappear? Will our integrity get watered down? Glenn Gibbs fears this may already be happening. The thing where everything really changed was the podcast Serial. When Serial happened... And Serial was an NPR joint, so it had, you know, corporate money behind it. Overnight, it seemed like the frontier was closed. I mean, there used to be an iTunes chart for just history podcasts. And we regularly hit the top 50. We competed. We we outdid BBC shows at times. But they combined it all into a topic now called Society and Culture. So now the history podcast have to compete with a, a podcast on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and all this true crime that came in the wake of Serial. But uh, that's kind of where, where the market went after Serial. We got gentrified. So the question is this. As we must compete with a broader range of shows and as bigger opportunities come our way, Will we end up dumbing down our content in order to appeal to the widest possible audience to get the biggest, best, big-budget deal? Or will those who control the purse strings recognize that what appeals to our listeners most is the unfettered passion that so characterizes our genre? Now, don't get me wrong, it is certainly a boon to podcasters that funding is helping us cover costs, and it even enables a few to do this full-time as a profession, which means that you, the listener, will get more of what you love. We just have to take care that what makes you love it is not lost in the process. You can do your podcast, and that's what I want you to do, because you will find the people that will get it. And I would rather have a thousand people that get it 
than a, a million armchair fans. And when, when you're come across a chapter, you're like, no, this isn't real. Like, this can't be true. Or, you know, if, and then you look it up on Wikipedia and you're like, no shit. They really did decapitate people in a cave, uh, you know, starting a cult or whatever. And like, this is that's a true story. Then suddenly that's a podcast and, you know, you're off to the races. Yeah, that's way more where the priority should be is like, this is fascinating to me. I want to tell the world. And on that note, thank you for listening, everybody. This has been the History of History podcasting. The first ever attempt at such a history, so far as I know. I couldn't find any other podcast, any book, any blog article, nothing. So, here you go. I hope you enjoyed it. Check out the full interviews for a whole lot more, including each podcaster's unique take on what podcasting was like when they got into it, the challenges that they faced in developing their own style, and what they'd like to see from history podcasting in the future, along with what new projects they are personally working on. Some of the interviews are funny, all of them are fascinating, and you can find the full interviews on our Patreon feed, where they are available free to the public at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. You can toss a buck our way if you want to support what we're doing and the new show that we're developing, or you can just enjoy your favorite podcasters talking to your heart's content. I would like to thank my many guests for taking the time to talk to me. Check out all of their shows. You can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, or pretty much any podcast platform, with the exception of Bob Packett's History According to Bob, which, for some god-awful reason that iTunes tech support still can't resolve, keeps disappearing from iTunes. So, for Bob's show, the one that started it all, go to his website at sumahistorica.com. You can consider it an old-school experience, sumahistorica.com. Now, as for our show, Dead Ideas, check out our back catalog for lots of great stuff, and do be sure to hit subscribe, because even though, yes, it's true, we've officially concluded the show, we are continuing to keep this feed alive with occasional releases in anticipation of the new show that we are developing called The History of Sex, covering gender, sex, and quirk across cultures and throughout world history. And the best way to get that when it drops is to subscribe to the Dead Ideas feed. Sound clips for this episode are used under a Creative Commons attribution license, drawing on the work of YouTube artists Nick Judy, Kevin McLeod, Chris Wells, Ilya Klushin, Jovan System, German Candy Taster, BJUKS, and Hello Kitty 9713. Finally, we mustn't forget Voyager 36360, who contributed the creepy theme playing behind the iPod clickwheel sound from their YouTube video Sirius B. And by the way, similarly, we are releasing this episode along with the full interviews under a Creative Commons attribution license, which means you can repost them, you can slice them up, you can use clips. As long as you give us credit, you can do with them as you will. Because really what I hope is someone will take up this topic in the future and give it a fuller treatment. Because I'm not fool enough to think that I did this 100% perfectly and maybe somebody can do it better. Maybe that someone is you. After all, this history belongs to all of us. This episode is a tribute to the genre we all love, and I hope you'll make something of it. All right, everybody, that's it for today. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is a live idea history podcasting.